Good morning. Okay, today's scripture is from Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he said, desiring to justify himself, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. This is a familiar passage, and uh, even even if you haven't been a churchgoer for much of your life, you've you've probably familiar with it. Um, so one of the things I'd like to do as we pray before we begin is that today's time looking at the passage can be, be uh, can can bring this alive to us in a way that we haven't seen before, because I think that it's 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 an amazing part of of the scripture that God has preserved for us. So let's pray together as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the privilege of, of the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and um, you've preserved that for us so that we today can understand you and um, the stories of your people and what your message is for us. Father, pray that our familiarity would not close our hearts and minds, but instead that you would be opening our hearts, helping it to be renewed and fresh and uh, alive as if we'd read it for the first time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as we begin, central to the question of the passage is the question of who is my neighbour? I've, I've titled the sermon, How to Love Your Neighbour, but who is my neighbour? And I'd like to start us off by just, just asking this question. Which of these people, and these are more or less real situations, which of these people is not 
my neighbour, if this was the situation you were in, which of these would you say is, is, is not in the class, classification of neighbour? The young couple a few doors down who have just received news of triple negative breast cancer. The street person who asks for cash so he can buy breakfast and then asks for more because the $10 is not enough. The work colleague whose marriage is breaking up because her husband has suffered a mental breakdown. The single mum at church whose teenage son has been suspended from school due to behavioural issues. I'll leave those with you. As we move into the passage, um, what I would like to do today is, is work through scene by scene, the different characters that are present in the story. Um, I've got seven characters that I want to go. If you're keeping track of time and how I'm going, I haven't done this for a while. It's probably 10 years ago. The pulpit was over there the last time I did this. So I'm not sure how I'm going to go for time. Um, James suggested a, a sermon on forgiveness. Um, he might need to practice that depending on how long I go. But um, if you're wondering how we're progressing through, I've got seven characters. I'm going to try to just keep working through each of those and um, you'll, you'll be able to check and keep track of time to know how far we're through as we go. So let's get into it. Don't need that one. So firstly, uh, we start with Jesus the teacher. Um, in this passage of scripture, we're seeing Jesus as rabbi. And as we read in, um, in Matthew after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was different from the teachers of the law. The crowds were, um, were not only, leave, he, he left people amazed, but also he taught with authority. His teaching was attractive, people wanted to hear him, yet many went away saddened. Saddened, yes, but not disappointed. Today's interaction with a lawyer, who uh, is with a lawyer who asks him a question. And there are two modes of teaching that Jesus uses. In the first instance, he answers a question with a question. There's many reasons why that's a good thing to do. He doesn't directly answer the question. I mean, how do you answer a question as big as how do I inherit eternal life? Instead, he begins with the lawyer's frame of reference, the law, to get at the question behind the question. Jesus does the same thing with the same question, with the same question in, in Mark 10, the rich young ruler, but goes in a different direction in that instance from what we see played out in the passage here. The second tactic or second method he uses is Shakespearean, shall we say. The play is the thing to catch the conscience of the king as the, uh, the rest of the quote goes. Jesus tells a parable, a story with a meaning. But why not just speak plainly or rebuke or encourage? Why risk people going away from a story with the wrong idea, hearing in the story only what they want to hear? One of the reasons is to create a space for grace. A parable allows the listener to hear something about themselves that they would block out if taught directly. 
Parables also open up a truth to the crowd, allowing each of those listening, and still listening today, if you will, to learn tough truths if we have ears to hear. A few weeks ago, Steve McAlpine preached to us, and I think in a world that needs, which, which needs to hear the subverse, subversive, life-giving gospel message, do we need to be learning more from our master about speaking the truth in love by telling stories graciously which convict the heart and at the same time reveal the gospel? Are we too blunt or do we need to look at the example Jesus had when he was teaching and use some of the method he had? There's a teacher and there's a student, so one went up to number two. We're introduced to this student as a lawyer who came to test Jesus. It's tempting today to villainise the lawyer as one of the hypocritical, self-justifying, self-glorifying Jewish opponents of Jesus. And while Jesus certainly spoke out against this element of Jewish religion in his day, it is unlikely to be helpful for us to stereotype just as it is... Stereotyping in general is just not helpful. Um, in a way, the lawyers and Pharisees were similar to modern evangelicals. They recognised that God had a special calling for his people. They were zealous to preserve the holiness of God's people by holding true to God's scriptures. They had a passion for Israel to be a God's light to the Gentiles. So as this man comes to Jesus to test him, can we not also see the question he's asking? Yes, yes, the the scripture calls it a test, but it, it may well be a very sincere question. Would we not see it as a responsible thing to do if a new preacher set up in Fremantle, attracting crowds, to perhaps go to the website and check out, what's their doctrine? What's this guy actually on about? Is he off on some weird tangent, some strange false doctrine that's been around for many years that's then being, being repeated? Or is he actually coming from a good place? We would regard that as an okay thing to do. So to villainise this lawyer for perhaps coming at it from the same perspective isn't something that we should, we should take care to make those sort of assumptions. Putting it another way, could this man be a cautious but sincere seeker of God, willing to look beyond his comfort zone, but rightly checking that he is not straying from sound doctrine? Maybe. Maybe he's just a Bible nerd. He's keen to show that he can ask good questions and impress Rabbi Jesus and have a good intellectual debate. I do want to make a a short comment here about what he was asking. It's very easy for us to think of this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, as something along the lines of what what do I need to do to get saved? What do I need to do to go to heaven? He's 
kind of asking that, but he's kind of not asking that. The, the, the frame of mind that, that uh, Jews of his day were probably asking more along the lines of, what does it mean? What does it look like? What do I need to then do to live the kingdom life? Not the life of this day, but that life that, that, is, that God inhabits. Um, when he says, what must I do? It frames sometimes for us this idea that he was saying, okay, what do I need to do to earn salvation? It, 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 it triggers our, our sort of grace-protective minds to think that he was looking for a works, he had a works mindset. But he also was asking, what do I need to do to inherit? And inheritance, by definition, is something that's a gift. It's something provided... So maybe it wasn't works that he was thinking about at all. Perhaps he was confused, and hence there's a tension between both. Um, In either case, Jesus' questions cause him to, as it says, try and justify himself. Instead of the, the, the path he thought he was going to go, he suddenly found himself defensive. And I wonder what it is about loving his neighbour that he thought was so difficult. Why is it that he was defensive about that particular note? It was a common question, a common debate amongst Jews at the time, the, the, the rabbis and intellectual discussions apparently. But I think that it's a grace, as I mentioned before, that Jesus, instead of making a list, um, being very dogmatic about it, chooses instead to tell a story, to confront him with compassion. And as we see later on, it's a a method that he's able to, to take on and understand. So, the story. We've got three characters there, four actually, four characters. Let's start with the man on the road. We're up to number three, tracking through, nearly halfway through, right? He's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and implies he's going down uh, the hill. You can actually look up on Google Maps and I invite you to do that on your way home, what that looks like. Um, It's about a 36 kilometre journey. Uh, If you're walking, it would apparently take eight hours and 22 minutes. Um, but the, the, the key thing is, is it was, a, it was a quite a big drop from about 800 metres above sea level in Jerusalem down to around minus 400, I think, in, in sort of the Dead Sea Valley where Jericho was. Um, some of the commentaries that I've read on this describe that road as being one that was very much uh, a whole lot of you know, tight switchbacks um, there's, a, there's a hill I tried to ride up when I was in, in, in Santiago. Oh, hello. Um, uh, in Santiago, which was very much that way. I mean, you, you, you're just, it, it looks like you're just dropping off the mountain, but this road is just winding back and forth as it, as it goes up. Um, at the day, and even into last century, uh, that, the, the Jericho to Jerusalem road was regarded as extremely dangerous. Um, 
bandits uh, were regarded, you were able to use that, those blind corners to hide, to um, surprise travellers. And they, the travellers themselves had to go slowly down the road to, um, to, to navigate the path they were on. Why was the man on the road? Um, why did the, 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 the bloke who got mugged in Northbridge the other night, um, why was he even in Northbridge on a Saturday night? Do you not realise that that's a dangerous place to be and bad things happen when you're, you're there at that time? So who was this man? Was he alone, foolishly travelling um, and vulnerable to, to robbers, known to take advantage of travellers on their own? Uh, was he perhaps travelling alone for less than noble reasons, making him doubly deserving of his fate? Or was he simply going about his business? Maybe he was even part of a group, but he was the one who was... Um, most aggressive in trying to resist the bandits and left behind. But an innocent victim of ruthless ruffians. Did his party abandon him or was he a hero whose sacrifice allowed friends to escape? One of the things about a parable, to go back to why Jesus taught, why one of the reasons Jesus method of teaching in parables is so powerful is it allows us to see differently. It, parables allow us to, and I mean this in the right way, not the wrong way, to create meaning. Um, they open up meaning for us by being able to explore the story in different ways according to where it hits us, where it meets our particular mindset, heart and, and imagination. It's not to say that, we can't, that, that there's not a little bit of discipline that's needed. They don't mean anything we want, but they can mean a lot of things. And so in this situation, does it matter if this man was an innocent victim or a naive one or somehow deserving of his fate? Does it make a difference who this victim on the road was? What we do know is actually not very much, except that he had a desperate need. He was half dead, and apparently that's even in the Greek, half dead. Or, and apparently, you know, so what is, what's the movie? He's mostly dead, um, Princess Bride. Um, if he didn't get help, half dead would quickly become fully dead. If anyone needed a neighbour, it was this man. And so it's fortunate that some people happened upon him as they went. The priest and the Levite, number four and five, or I've called them four A and B. Sometime after this mugging, a, a priest and a Levite come down the same road. Again, it implies they're coming down from Jerusalem through to Jericho. Um, and if we... Um, Try to imagine what that road might have looked like. You know, we can sort of ask the question, well, did they, could they see that this man was, as they, they're sort of looking down the road, that there's, there's somebody on the road down below them? So as they're sort of winding, oh, yeah, yep, no, it looks like there's somebody down there. 
Or do they just come around a corner and, and all of a sudden, ooh, there's somebody on the road? In each case, the, Le- the priest and the Levite passed by, either as a premeditated decision or maybe out of pure instinct. Who were the priests and the Levites? The priests had ceremonial duties uh, in the temple. And it may be, we could think, that the priest had a reason to avoid the man. If, if, if this man on the road was dead, the priest would have had to undergo strict cleansing before he could serve again in the temple. But then he was leaving Jerusalem, so the urgency of spiritual duties was maybe a stigma, it was maybe it was annoying, but it wasn't an issue in terms of being able to attend to his duties. Or was he perhaps more concerned about something else? Maybe he was more concerned that the man was in fact only, only half dead, and if he wasn't fully dead, then being half alive was actually a greater inconvenience than if he was dead. If you know what I mean. It implied a different responsibility of what he'd have to take on. Anyway, the priest doesn't seem to take much notice. He just keeps walking. The Levite, so the, the, the Levites were similar to the priests in that they, they had um, ceremonial duties in the temple, but they weren't so much involved in the sacrificial duties. It's, it's almost a little bit like, um, you know, you had a, a preacher and an, you had the, the, the preacher and an elder passing, passing by. So, the, you know, the preacher has, you know, likely every Sunday, you know, um, duties every, every t- all the time. Um, elders might be involved every few weeks on doing something. So it's a slightly different, different role, still part of the leadership, so to speak. Um, yeah. Unlike the priest, the Levite seems to stop and look um, before passing by in the same manner. And it raises the question of what the Levite was pausing to do. Was he pausing to see if the victim was a relative or a friend? Um, there's some really interesting implications about the fact that the only, the only way that he could identify this, this man, the, the, the victim couldn't talk, the victim ha- had been stripped of all of his clothes. So how you identify whether somebody is even a Jew or a Gentile at that time um, is, is interesting, if that's indeed what he was stopping to do. Was he checking to see whether he was still alive? Um, one of the ideas William Barclay suggests is that, that he had second thoughts. He saw him and he stopped and he knew he had a, had a duty, as all Jews did at that time, to protect life and support life. But then he had, as he, as he started to approach, and he, he then thought, well, what if this man is a decoy on the road and the bandits are just setting him up to then get me as well? And realising his uh, potential he was in a potentially threatening situation also, moved on and, uh, and didn't help him. The conclusion we seem to be arriving at with these two, two men is, is that the reasons to help seem all too easy to find and that spirituality seems even to be, have been a barrier rather than a motivator. And I think 
you know, part of this is a reflection on why we need a commandment like love your neighbour as yourself. If it was easy, if it was something that we just instinctively did and we enjoyed doing and, and, and we don't need a command for those things. We need commands that help us to, to, to look beyond what is, if you like, our natural, natural instinct. Excuses are natural. Neighbourliness, true neighbourliness as Jesus is defining it, is not. And so we come to the Samaritan. How are we going? Yeah, not too bad. That's all right. The Samaritan. Um, my dad tells me a story, um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got some of the details wrong, but, but I'll, the, the, the general idea is um, hopefully uh, accurate enough. But he tells a story from his childhood whereby by his aunt saw another woman coming by in neighbourhood eastward in Sydney, uh, where he lived, saw another woman of Scottish descent coming down the footpath uh, on the same side of the road, sees her at a distance, crosses to the other side of the footpath, walks down the other side and then crosses back over after that woman had passed. Uh, the woman was a Campbell. And the Campbells, in 1692, so 250 years before the 1950s that Dad, Dad was growing up, um, were responsible for the infamous Glencoe Massacre. Um, the McDonald's, who they took hospitality with, were refusing to support the new king. And so these Campbells, took hospitality for a few nights and then eventually killed all the McDonald's while they were sleeping. There was a grudge apparently worth crossing the street for 200 years later. But that's the, I think, the kind of ethnic bitterness that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day. The Samaritan is very much the villain or would have been perceived to be the villain of the story. To the Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Um, it's, it's like Jesus said, um, but as a, a, a local Al-Qaeda supporter, I know that's a bit, sort of an old analogy, or, the, or the, the local white supremacist, or an anti-scripture in schools atheist came along, and, and, and we're all sort of just hard to say, oh, no. You, that, that. Jesus is being uh, the, the, the Samaritan was someone for whom his audience would have had a guttural sense of disgust towards. And Jesus is being subversive and inflammatory for a reason by using a Samaritan in the situation. So when describing the Samaritan's response to the victim, Jesus notes that he not only came to him, so the Levite came to him also, but the Samaritan had compassion on him. He felt for him in his very bowels. So this is the word splachnos, splachnos in the Greek, this sense of deep feeling. And it's a word that is, is used to describe Jesus' feeling of compassion before he healed people. It's worth remembering that when we come back to this something at the end. 
So feeling more than just sympathy or sadness, this was a compassion that compelled the Samaritan to take action. He paused his journey to bind wounds, lifted the man onto his animal and walked him to the safety of an inn. This victim, naked, bloody and dusty, washing his wounds and loading him onto a donkey would be a messy business. His business attire would be uh, dirtied and he'd be arriving late to his next appointment as well as being tired. Getting to the inn, the Samaritan left two days' wages with the innkeeper. It's worth thinking about that, what that, that calculation means for you. You know, calculate annual salary, divide by, you know, 200 days of work or whatever, or 300. Two days' wages with the innkeeper to tend the man with a pledge to pay more as needed later. He risks being taken advantage of. The innkeeper could just make up a number later on and just say, oh, yeah, it cost me this much. Oh, okay, sure. It's also interesting that the, 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 the Samaritan's wealth... Uh, on one hand, it says that he had the resources to help in a way that others might not have. It also means that he was more vulnerable on the road by stopping and, um, stopping and helping uh, because of that, that same issue. So all this for a man who, if he was Jewish, would have regarded the Samaritan and his people as scum. A man who might have recovered from his wounds to be horrified that a Samaritan had not only touched him but rescued him. And so Jesus finishes the story with what I think is supposed to be a rhetorical question. Which of these was a neighbour to the man in need? And the teacher of the law uh, seems to have understood, replying that the neighbour was indeed the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. There's some lovely nuance in that, but I won't go any more into it. But the, the, the teacher of the law understood. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So that's our characters they're through are we nearly uh, where where are you in the story where are we in this story um, I've heard lessons given on this which seem to underplay the practicality that Jesus seems to be talking through here but I think we're supposed to have a look at this and say, are we a priest? Are we the Levite or are we the Samaritan? And recognising what the actual one who was a good neighbour was to take action. Finding reasons not to help the needy God puts in our path is easy. Indeed, when we get close enough to see how much need there is out there, it's overwhelming. Yet if we are to fulfil the command to love our neighbour, we dare not make excuses. So how can we take action? I'd like to suggest four practical ways we can start to move into this neighbourliness 
Firstly, approach those who are in need. Get close enough to know what's going on. So don't be like the priest, at least like the Levite. At least get curious enough to have a look. Number two, allow yourself to feel compassion. I think there's so many obstacles to us mentally to blame others, exclude others, find reasons not to help, find reasons not to feel. Allow yourself to feel compassion. Number three, do something, anything. It might not be very big initially, it might not be very significant, a donation, a kind word, or it might indeed be messy and costly. Allow yourself to do something in response. And number four, don't just go on your own. Realise that that's, this, is, this is not so much for the passage, this is more about just our community, what it means to be a church. But I don't think our calling is just to be individuals who are good Samaritans, but for the church, us as, as, a, as a body, to feel Jesus' call to neighbourliness. Um, it doesn't need to be something that we are overwhelmed with um, and just have to take on ourselves. Support those who are already doing some, some stuff in this space. Get involved with, with others, perhaps, in a way of, of learning. So, on one hand, um, where do we find ourselves in terms of our neighbourliness? But it could be as well that, that we're none of those today. Maybe this story today finds you beaten half to death on the Jericho Road, physically, financially, emotionally or spiritually, or maybe all four. Uh, and indeed some would-be rescuers have already passed you by. I think all of us have been, are or will be, uh, in that same boat at some stage. It may even be our own fault that we've ended up in a mess on the road. But God provides a rescuer, a good Samaritan, this is number seven by the way, who will bind our wounds, carry us to safety and pay the price needed to restore us to health. Jesus is the true good Samaritan and no matter your need, he can provide the rescue that you need. Let's pray together.